Right now, we're about halfway through the book of Matthew. We're specifically, we're just starting in chapter 15. And as we enter chapter 15, we find Yeshua confronted by some Pharisees and teachers of the law. And the sad part about this passage is what the church has done with the passage. They've used this passage to prove their erroneous teaching that the Torah has been abrogated by Yeshua's coming. And that is what the church has done. They've done it because of some really bad hermeneutics over the centuries. They no longer follow Torah. And what makes this so sad is that this and the other passages they cite aren't even about Torah. But this and the others are very much about what the Pharisees had done with the Torah and how they had expanded on the Torah with their own laws. Even the Pharisees themselves had abrogated the Torah by their traditions, Yeshua says. This passage is about the rigid purity laws that the Pharisees had put into place. And to understand the passage, let's just see if we can't understand the Pharisees first. And then we'll go into chapter 15 and I think it'll be a little easier for us to understand. This is what the Jewish Encyclopedia tells us about this first century group called the Pharisees who later became the rabbis. The party representing the religious views, practices, and hopes of a kernel of Jewish people in the time of the Second Temple and in opposition to priestly Sadducees. They were accordingly scrupulous observers of the law as interpreted by the Sopharim or scribes in accordance with tradition. And so these folks were scrupulous observers of, well, not so much the Torah of Moses, but the traditions that had been passed down by the sages and then further modifications made by themselves, of course. And by the time we get to the first century, the Pharisees were the interpreters of the law. If you went to synagogue, that's what you heard. They were the interpreters of the law for everyday life. They will be the leaders and the expounders of Torah in the synagogue services. And by the time we get to Yeshua's day, they will be powerful because they had the support of all of the people of Israel, which gave them a power base because of their piling laws on top of God's laws, they appeared to be very pious. When in fact, some of the very things they did to look pious had led them astray. This is what Josephus says about them. And whatsoever they, the Pharisees, do about the divine worship and prayers and sacrifices, they, the priests, perform according to their direction. Insomuch that the cities give great attestations to them both in actions of their lives and their discourses also. On the great day of atonement, the high priest was told by the elders that he was but a messenger of the Sanhedrin and must officiate. The Pharisees introduced rites in the temple which originated in popular custom and were without foundation in the law. Such was the procession of the people on the night of Sukkot at the pool of Siloam ending in the water libation in the morning and the final beating of the willows upon the altar at the close of the feast. In all these practices, the Pharisees obtained the ascendancy over the Sadducees, claiming to be in possession of the traditions of the fathers. And so they're powerful because of the people, and their reach extended right into the temple services. 
So powerful that even the Sadducees, the priests who were supposed to officiate in the temple, even though they disagreed with them, they had to do what the Pharisees wanted for fear of the people. Now, what would put the Pharisees on a collision course with John the Baptist and Yeshua was not only their disagreement in areas of halakha with the Pharisees, but also John and Yeshua's popularity with the people was a threat to them. So first we have a group that's very respected by the people, very powerful because of that. And when you couple that fact with that they were, as we're going to see, have traditions that are in conflict with the Torah in the plan of God, traditions that actually do away with the commands of God, they're on a collision course with Yeshua, who always did the will of the Father. And of course, he told us in Matthew that he had come to add fuller meaning to the Torah, to the law. A correct understanding of the law. He came to fulfill the law, fill it up with meaning. And so someone who's abrogating the law, of course, is going to be on a collision course with Yeshua. The Pharisees were so rigid in their observance of purity laws that they kept their association with the common people of Israel at a very minimum. They did not associate with non-Jews. And the reason is that we'll get into next because it, it's coupled with them. It, it's, it's shown right in the meaning of their name. Listen to uh, the Encyclopedia Judaica again. Perisha, the singular of Perishaya, denotes one who separates himself or keeps, him awa keeps away from persons or things impure in order to attain the degree of holiness and righteousness required in those who would commune with God. And so what you need to understand about the Pharisees is they had expounded on these purity laws to the degree that they are separate from almost everything and everyone but themselves. This expansion comes from expanding on the actual Torah law that says anything unclean when touching something clean makes the clean thing unclean by virtue of contact. Here's what the Torah says about clean and unclean. Leviticus 11 and verse 24. You will make yourselves unclean by these. Whoever touches their carcasses will be unclean until evening. Whoever picks up one of their carcasses must wash his clothes and he will be unclean until evening. See, the point is, if you, if you touch an unclean animal, it renders you unclean. Other things that render you unclean according to the Torah are... Monthly discharges, sexual things, diseases. If you're touched by someone with a skin disease, it renders you unclean. Mildew in a house renders it unclean in the occupants as well. So the Pharisees, of course, will expand on these things. And these additional purity laws are going to play a heavy role in the life of Yeshua in the early believers. Understand there's no area of God's law that was not made more stringent by the Pharisees. Also, their rulings conflicted, if their rulings conflicted with the commands of God in the Torah, as they do in the passage we're going to look at, they would relax the command of God. In other words, their laws oftentimes became more important than the commands of God. And as you can imagine, 
with the emphasis on purity and only Israel being pure, the rest of the world impure, that's going to be in direct conflict with the Messiah who has come to be a light to the nations, who sent his disciples out into the world to be a light to the nations. And that's something that the early disciples of Yeshua will battle throughout the book of Acts. Shaul writes about it extensively in the book of Galatians and Romans. And Josephus alluded to the fact that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were at odds with one another. The Sadducees were the priests and had originally, where they were originally to be the teachers in Israel, teachers of the people. But the Pharisees have usurped that and much more. And the curious thing is that we often see these two opposing factions confronting Yeshua together. But understand, there's no love lost between these two groups. Josephus told us that the Pharisees stuck their noses into the temple services and because of that, they weren't liked by the Sadducees who were the priests. Listen to what the Jewish Encyclopedia says again. In the temple itself, the Pharisees obtained a hold at an early date when they introduced the regular daily prayers besides sacrifice and institution of the Ma'amadot the representatives of the people during the sacrifices. Moreover, they declared that the priests were the deputies of the people. And so they instituted many of the services in the temple, some from the sages, some dating back to the great assembly. And here we're told that it was they who made a way for the Ma'amad, who were the elders from the 24 districts of Israel that would come up and say the daily prayers in the temple. It goes on to say, the daily recital of the Shema as well as the other parts of the divine service is a Pharisaic institution. The Pharisees having established their Habara or league in each city to conduct the service. The Pharisees introduced rites in the temple which originated by popular custom and were without foundation in the law. And so much of the temple services in the time of Yeshua was not according to what the priests or the Torah required, but were additions to some, like we can look at a few, like the service for Shavuot. They completely changed the focus of the service for Shavuot. The focus of the service of Shavuot was the first fruits. They changed the focus to the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. As an example, another of on Shavuot, the day it fell on. The Torah is quite clear. The day of Shavuot should be the morrow after the weekly Sabbath, which would make it always fall on a Sunday. But the Pharisees, with the emphasis on giving of the law, said, no, it should be on the morrow after the Sabbath of unleavened bread, which would make it always fall on Savan 6 and, and, and vary what day it was going to fall on during the week. So with the power the Pharisees wielded, they won. Everything was done according to their reckoning. And I went through all of this because I want you to see this is the emphasis, with this emphasis on purity and the rigidity with which they kept these things and the power they wielded and their willingness to set aside God's law for their own law is what we must understand, Matthew 15, this first part. Let's read it. Verse 1. Then some of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law came to Yeshua from Jerusalem and asked, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. So the first clue that we have that this is not about Torah is because the Torah never says anything about this. You have to understand that this is, this is not a washing for cleanliness. 
like we do. Before you eat, always a good idea. But this was about a ceremonial washing. And it's still done to this day. I put a picture up here. And here's a picture of an accepted hand-washing vessel. If you've never been to Israel, you'll see plastic versions of this all over Israel. And they will first wash their hands for cleanliness, of course. And then they will take a pitcher like this. And you'll note that this pitcher has two handles. And the reason is simple. You're going to wash your hands with this pitcher by pouring some water over your hands, a ceremonial washing, right? So you pick up the pitcher with one hand and you pour water over your hands. Of course, now that you picked up that pitcher and handled that handle with an unclean hand, you can't just take your clean hand and go up and grab that same handle. So you have to grab another handle to wash your other hand. And so this is the kind of thing that they're confronting Yeshua with. And really it has nothing to do with Torah. You'll not find this in the Torah. It has nothing to do with cleanliness. It's all about the purity laws of the Pharisees. It was, however, taken very seriously, as we can see from some traditions that I pulled up in Sota 5a says, anyone who does not wash his hands before he eats bread is, an, is as an is as unclean as if he had sex with a prostitute, as it is written, for the prostitute reduces you to a loaf of bread. Rabbi Zerika said in the name of Rabbi Eliezer, whoever disregards the washing of hands before a meal will be uprooted in the world, from the world. Rabbi Abihu says, whoever eats bread without first washing his hands is though he eats unclean food, as it is written, in this way the people of Israel will eat defiled food. And so we can certainly see if these quotes represent the thought of the day, and I'm sure that they do, why the Pharisees are confronting Yeshua and his disciples. And this would not only incense them, if this is what they believe, but it would also show the people who were around a clear delineation between the, their piety and over these vagabond disciples of Yeshua who didn't wash their hands. Now Yeshua does not answer their question directly. We don't really get an answer, a straightforward answer until we get to verse 16. And we're going to skip down there. That may be part of why this passage is so confused. And he says this to answer the question, Are you still so dull, Yeshua asked them, don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes through the stomach and then out the body? But the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart. And these make a man unclean. For out of your heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. These are what make a man unclean. But eating with unwashed hands, not so much. Now this passage, more than likely because of its separation from the verses above, is often used to say that unclean food is now okay to eat. But really, as you can see, that's not the context at all. The passage isn't about unclean food. It's still about unwashed hands in the manner of the Pharisees. The passage is about unclean hands making clean food unclean. He tells us it's not what goes into your, to you that makes you unclean, but it what comes out of your mouth. 
and the heart that make you unclean. Washing your hands with a two-handled vessel does nothing but speaking with two tongues or two faces. That's another matter. It will certainly make you unclean. A heart that's given to false testimony will make you unclean. But not washing false uncleanness from your hands. If we speak evil of one another, then we're unclean. If we give false testimony, we're unclean. In other words, these are clear violations of God's Torah. And they make you unclean by virtue of you having sinned. But not washing hands in this fashion, it violates no law of God. So it's not sin. And it doesn't render you unclean. Isn't that simple? So if we go back, verse 3, Yeshua says this. Yeshua replied, And why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? Well, what you can see from his answer is that this is not a rebuke of the Torah of God or an undermining of the Torah, but it's an upholding of the commands of God that have been broken by the Pharisees through their traditions. We see that washing your hands in this fashion isn't found in Torah, it's just a tradition. The problem is, the tradition actually violates the command of God because if we look in Leviticus, we're told this in verse 47 of chapter 11, you must distinguish between the unclean and the clean between living creatures that may be eaten and those that may not, may not be eaten. He tells us that we're supposed to be able to distinguish between what is clean and what is unclean, what is sin and what is not. The Pharisees had not done that. They, by their traditions, had rendered that which was clean, unclean in the, heart, in the minds of the people. They were saying that by touching clean food with ceremonially unclean hands, they had rendered the food unclean as well. Let me say something. The traditions of men can render the things of God null and void in the lives of people. Traditions of men can actually keep people from the commands of God as this tradition had done. That does not make all tradition bad, nor do all traditions keep people from the commands of God. Many traditions help people keep the commands of God. Traditions in and of themselves are not bad, but anything used improperly can be a bad thing. We just went through four weeks of teaching on our traditions that we do here in the, at Sar Shalom. I believe that our traditions help people in their pursuit of keeping the commands of God. They certainly in no way undermine the commands of God. We don't even require people to keep them. Although I can tell you that it really has blessed my heart in the last few weeks to see so many people wearing prayer shawls now at the services and so many people carrying the Torah scroll because of that. I've had several people who now wear them come to me and tell me what a blessing it was and how the Lord had touched them because of it. So traditions in and of themselves are not bad. They can be quite good. Even the Pharisees' traditions were not all bad. Some were quite good. Above, we read the Pharisees had instituted by their tradition the festival of the water pouring at Sukkot. And in John chapter 8, we see Yeshua participating in this very ceremony. The Pharisees had instituted the synagogue service. And we, we looked a couple weeks ago how Yeshua participated in that service. 
But here's where the buck stops for Yeshua. If a tradition abrogates a command of God, the buck stops there. And that's the way it should be our stance as well. Amen? Amen? So let me say something else. I'm so glad that this sermon took me to Sukkot. Isn't that funny how that worked? And let me say why. Because Sunday evening begins this joyous time. As we remember things like the birth of Yeshua that happened at this time of the year. We, we, we look forward to Yeshua's coming and ruling on the, the earth. This is what this festival is a shadow of. It's a shadow of the Messianic kingdom. It's a joyous time. But it's actually a very joyous time here at Kehilat Sar Shalom. Not just because it's a coke and the season of our joy, but because 20 years ago Monday, we became a community of people. We had our first service on a Sukkot 20 years ago we started a Messianic Jewish community. And we remained that until this day. You know, not everybody was happy with us and many said we wouldn't endure. Oh, you're never going to make it. But I'll tell you something, we've become one of the leading Messianic communities in the city. Ted Pierce says, said to me that this congregation of all the congregations he's visited in the city, and he's visited them all, he said this congregation is the one with the anointing on it to bring the Jewish roots to the city. Through the years, many have come in and tried to change our community, but we remain. We remain the same. Let me say something. The leaders of this community have always had a love for God, a love for Messiah, of course, but also the ancient roots of our faith, a love for Torah, a love and respect for those who come in among us, and a love and a desire to see God's people Israel be saved. To hear the Jewish people say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And all of the traditions, those things we do as a community, take all of those things into consideration. And they're not going to change. Our traditions are sensitive to the Jewish people. We want that they should be able to come in here and be comfortable. And when they, come, when they come in here, hence you won't see any crosses in the place. We have no crosses because of the persecution our Jewish brothers have endured by the church. You know, I personally have nothing against the cross. Our Lord Yeshua was certainly crucified on some form of a cross. And I, I don't care which form. I'm not going to get into that debate. But through the years, Christians, as a popular book is entitled, have turned the cross into a switchblade and then used it on the Jewish people. Another reason the cross has no particular meaning for me is I, I don't really focus on the death of Messiah. I focus on his life and trying to be like him. Amen. Amen? Isn't that what life is about? In our traditions, as I said, they reflect these things. If you ask people who are here for our first services or have returned or are still here, you're going to hear things like, KSS doesn't change. Oh, we know that we know more now than we did 20 years ago. We've grown in our understanding of the Word of God as, as each study has brought us new understanding. 
But our love for God, our love for truth, and our love for His people remain the same, and our traditions reflect those things also remain the same. And we've had people leave over the years because some because we wouldn't change. Some wanted us to be more Baptist or some less Baptist. Some wanted us to be more charismatic. Some wanted us to be less charismatic. Some wanted us to be more Jewish traditional. Some less Jewish traditional. What's a fella to do? (laughs) You just stay the same, right? (laughs) There's a reason we don't change. And that's 20 years ago, we prayed and we sought the direction of God on how to function as a community. We didn't listen to the teachings and traditions of the church fathers for our, the pattern of our community. We didn't listen to the, we didn't study the Talmud and Mishnah in our prayer books or the, go study with the rabbis to learn how to pattern our community. But we took the time to pray and seek God about how He wanted our community to be fashioned. And you know something? We've never found anything better than that. So we remain unchanged. There's no need to change. 20 years ago, we wore prayer shawls with Tehillim. 20 years ago, we said the same liturgy. 20 years ago, we did many of the same songs. 20 years ago, we did the same Torah service. Of course, the scroll was a little smaller. Let's see if I got it here someplace. This is the scroll we used to use when we first started. Even our Torah scrolls have grown. (laughs) Right? But we've did the same thing. We sang many of the same songs. Because it just doesn't get any better than what God has told you to do. Just don't get any better than that. Not everyone over the years has liked the way we do things. Not everyone has said we would survive. And yet here we are 20 years later. And I have to say we must be doing something right. Right? Not only that, there's congregations that came from this one. There's one that thought we should be more Jewish traditional. There's another one that came from Sar Shalom that said they wanted to be less Jewish traditional. The point being, because we wouldn't change, they went and started something new. And, and that's great. I love them. Because it helps people who wouldn't make it here find a place to worship. It's the way God works. I don't, you know, you don't always see it. You don't always like it. Because you miss some of the people that leave. But that's the way God does things. It's like in first century Israel. Everybody was happy. Everybody had all things in common. They wanted to stay in this community. So what did God do? He brought persecution on that community to scatter them. Otherwise, they would have just stayed in a group. That's the way we are. I realized, you know, I, I realized years ago that we have to love each other first and respect The fact that God has differing gifts. He has differing calls on people's lives. And both of those congregations uh, that I just spoke of serve as people who wouldn't make it here. And that's a real blessing to see them have a place to worship. And so we not only have grown, but we have been an instrument that God has used to spread the Torah to other areas of town. And we can celebrate that. Amen? And what better time to celebrate it than in the season of our joy? But I want to say something else, more than that. More than those who have left. That isn't what I've really been dwelling on all week. I've been dwelling on those who have been here since the beginning. And the things that have happened since the beginning. Nancy played at our first Sukkot service 20 years ago. These people and others all made the move from our old building. 
to this one. You know why we did it? So we'd have room for the rest of you that have come in since then. Because we didn't have any room left over there. But here's the deal. I marvel at all of you and all that you do and at how you have all grown in the Lord over the last 20 years. I marvel at what the Lord has done through you and us. People have gone to Israel to do wonderful things and then return here. People with a burden for the Hebrew language who knew nothing about the Hebrew language when they came here now know Hebrew better than I do. That's a blessing. I marvel at all that God has done in this place in just 20 years. And I get great joy out of each and every people of God study we do, wondering what these new people are going to do in the next 20 years. And I can't wait to see the work that God will do in each of you over the next 20 years if God is willing to let me stick around that long. Or if he doesn't return before that. Because some of you will take over leadership of the community. Some of you will be elders, some deacons. All of us serving the King of Kings, the Holy One of Israel, though. So anyway, I want to take this time at Sukkot to thank all of you who have been here for so long and supported this work all these years and tell you how much I love you, I appreciate you, and marvel at what the Lord has done in your lives and done through you. To those who are newer, I look forward to marveling over what God is going to do in your lives in the future and bless you all. I want to bless you all and wish you a wonderful Sukkot and try and make it to 